All right, so Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for Tom and his willingness and desire to seek you first. And Lord, we pray that this morning the words that you have given him would be nourishment to us and that we would have open hearts and ears to receive your word this morning. We thank you and we just pray for boldness and uh, again, uh, an openness to hear from your spirit this morning through Tom. And we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, guys. Is that on? Yeah. Check. check. Uh, Thank you guys for letting us pray for you. Yeah. Yeah. Really. One thing I just wanted to add is just I want to I felt like God was inviting you to um, expect the unexpected. If we think about the story of Scripture, God often works in a creative way that we wouldn't have expected. And so sometimes we think God needs to work this way for it to be him. And I think it's more he's able to do more than we think. So. Um, but thank you for letting us pray for you guys and for being here this morning. Um, She's saying thank you to all of you uh, really quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet thank you. Uh-huh. We can go home now. That was it. I don't have to preach. Uh, but guys, if I've not met you before, my name is Tom, and welcome to the first week of Advent. Um, we are. We got some fancy slides happening here, actually video going on, um, but... We are, we're going to do uh, four weeks, and we've entitled this series, Into Wonderful Light. Um, any morning people in the room? I'm not sure. I shouldn't put my hand up. Any morning people in the room? <laughs> God bless you. Um, I've been trying to wake up early, and it's one of these things where once I'm up, I love it, but the process of waking up is very painful and difficult and not so enjoyable. Amen? Amen? All right. Uh, But one of the things that I've been enjoying about waking up earlier is that whole transition from darkness to light of the sun actually coming up. It's kind of magical, actually, when we're when we really think about it, that every single day there's this process that God moves us from from darkness to light. That that's just it's there. It's an objective reality that the sun rises. And so with this in mind, this kind of paradigm, uh, if we think about scripture, the, the whole um, thought or idea of moving from darkness to light is something that comes up very often in scripture. And I think it's even potentially shorthand for the whole journey of discipleship. The apostle Peter says, God has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that's what we're hopefully continually doing is coming out of the darkness into God's wonderful light. And so with this in mind, we thought this was a helpful kind of paradigm to think through the next four weeks. Because one of the things that light does is it grants us perspective. Anyone tried to walk down the steps in the dark and miss the last step? Or think that there's an extra step and you do that weird like stomp down? It's the worst. Uh, This morning I woke up early and I was trying to get dressed and I was very confident that I was pulling out of our closet a pair of pants and it was in fact a shirt. So we need the light to be able to see what's going on. Um, And so I want to, I mean, I don't want to repeat myself and you guys are kind of going to be like, obviously Tom, but the last 20 months, if we're honest, have been a really dark time for us. Uh, It's been a struggle to keep the bigger picture of what God is doing in the forefront of our minds, at least for me, I'm sure for a lot of us in this room. And in the midst of that, I would suggest that our hope, our peace, our joy, and our love has taken a severe beating. And so our goal in this series is to bring us back into the bigger picture of God's mission over these next four weeks by sharing four different perspectives on the Advent story. 
And so this week we're going to be looking at the story from the perspective of the prophets with hope in mind. Next week I'm going to be talking about the angels and this whole announcement of peace. Jillian Strickwarda is going to be talking about the shepherds and joy. Uh, Jess is going to be talking about the, the magi and love. And all this will culminate in our Christmas Eve service here at the Circle Theater. So if you haven't heard about it, Christmas Eve service coming soon. Um, but first up, let's talk about hope. So the, the, the first perspective we're going to look at is that of the prophets and the whole virtue of hope. So what is hope? So just a few de- words of definition. And I want to share a story that hopefully will help us kind of frame up the morning. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are two words that are translated into hope. The first one is yakal, which means to wait for. And the other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. Um, it's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. And when you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's a release. And that's kava, that feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. Um, in the New Testament, the Greek word is elpis, which is favorable and confident expectation or a forward look with assurance. Uh, Dallas Willard puts it this way. Hope is joyous anticipation of good that is not yet here or is unseen. Uh, I wanted to share a story that I uh, I'm going to be careful that I talk about this in the right way about my wife giving birth. Um, <laughs> Keyword, I didn't say we gave birth. We weren't pregnant. She was pregnant. She gave birth. Um, but let's just, like, there's a, there's a couple slides I want us to think through. So this is, uh, so 14 years ago, my wife comes to me, and she shares the greatest news I've ever heard. She says, Cubby, I'm pregnant. And so all of a sudden, there's this, in our future, there's a baby, a white, very pale baby on top of the mountain. <laughs> Lily was very white when she was born. And so... So all of a sudden, our world's different, right? There's this promise of this baby that's coming. And so we're, we're thinking things through differently. We're excited. We don't know what we're getting ourselves into by any stretch of the imagination. But I can tell you this. We were very hopeful of the baby that was on our way. And so time progresses. We find out we're having a baby girl. We come up with a name. We decorate her room. We have all kinds of stuff happening in our minds and our imaginations about what this is going to be like. And then it comes to actual labor. Um, funny side note, so uh, just as in labor, it felt like for a couple months, but um, uh, we, we had, I, I'm sure I had a watch or some type of phone at the time, but instead of using that to keep track of the um, contractions, I went to the Paris Street building and took down the wall clock for some reason, and I carried the wall clock around with me, and I had this notebook of like pages and pages of, of contractions and times, so anyways, this little side note, didn't know what I was doing. Um, but, yeah, it's reasonable, right, Kev? Um, so, yeah, so we're waiting for this baby to come. And Jess is going through contractions and Braxton Hicks contractions and all kinds of stuff is going on. We're calling the midwives. Is it time yet? They're like, ah, oh, not really. I don't think yet. Um, and she's calling her sisters who had also had a baby, you know. And, and I think what we were re- beginning to realize, um, we, uh, mainly her, I was there in the room with her, um, is that sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. And now you fast forward into the actual birthing stage, and that took over 24 hours, and things got hairy. It was, it was wild up in that room. And we lived through that whole experience of sometimes things get worse before they get better, which is this whole next slide. And so even now, we're like, okay, yeah, things are going to get worse, but it's going to happen sooner than we think. It's, the baby's coming. But in reality, it looked more like this. It was a long process. And there were many ups and downs, and there were hills and valleys and treacherous climbs, but eventually, baby Lily came into the world. 
But I want us to just think around this idea and take this into our, our lesson this morning, our, our thinking this morning. It's just that very phrase, sometimes things get worse before they get better. So let's, let's pray and then we're going to dive into Isaiah chapter 9 and look at this whole idea of hope. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning and uh, we thank you for what we've been able to sing and declare about uh, you being our living hope, Lord. That, that who, who could stop the Lord Almighty? Lord, you are faithful. You are good. Uh, thank you that we got to pray for our friends this morning. And Lord, we thank you that um, you invite us to place our trust in you. And in doing that, Lord, what we're essentially saying is, Lord, have your way. And more often than, than not, Lord, your way is different than our way. And that's a good thing. And so this morning, Lord, I ask you to have your way. Come speak through me, Lord. Anything that is not from you, that is just of me, may it fall away. But Lord, the, the truth and the revelation that you have for us for, as your family this morning, may it ring true. And may we leave this room full of hope, full of a deeper trust in you. And uh, may it be contagious to those around us, Lord. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, guys, we're going to be reading one of the more famous uh, Christi- uh, Christmas passages from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, but as, as I want to just kind of set the tone um, about who, who even is Isaiah, what is happening in the story of Israel, and what is he actually prophesying, or into like what kind of context are we, is he prophesying into. And so a prophet in the Old Testament is an Israelite who has this radical encounter with God. And in this process, God actually um, commissions him to speak to Israel on his behalf. So he commissions a human to speak on behalf of God. And so typically what this prophet is doing is calling Israel back into partnership with him. Hey, guys, come back. Remember, we made this covenant. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. But as you well know, we often fall through on our side of the bargain. And so what the prophet is doing is calling people back into trust and allegiance to Yahweh alone. And he does this through a few ways. The first thing he does is he just calls them out on their sin. He's saying, listen, man, you guys are being idolatrous. You're being disobedient to the Torah. But then there's this invitation given of repentance. Hey, turn the other direction and come back to Yahweh, back into our partnership. And then when that doesn't work, there's this whole uh, picture given and painted of the day of the Lord, which is how God was going to bring justice on Israel and the violent nations around them. And those of us who are reading through Jeremiah and the Bible reading plan are in the middle of this. It's confusing. Are they talking about the future? Are they talking about now? And the answer is yes. So they're, they're, the prophet is both pointing Israel towards the new creation, new Jerusalem, the new king, the new creation, and also warning of the impending justice going to be unleashed on them through God either removing his protection or some type of process like that. So Yahweh, or Isaiah is a prophet. So he's one who's been commissioned by God to speak on God's behalf to man. And his central message is this, Yahweh is salvation. And so he's continually providing this God-centered way of seeing the world. He's giving them a new perspective on what's happening. And so he's bringing perspective and he's calling people back to hope. So what's going on in the story of Israel? Isaiah, okay, is a prophet, but what's happening in the story of Israel, the people he's speaking to? Israel is actually under God's discipline at the moment, and they're a, a divided kingdom. So the kingdom is divided into Judah and Israel, and God's rebellious people are craving worldly security. And so into this context, Isaiah begins to speak on behalf of God. Hey, listen, there's, there's an impending invasion coming, coming from your worst enemy. Assyria is coming to invade, and they're going to eventually lead you into exile. 
And this would look like something like Kloss coming next week and saying, hey, guys, listen, New York State is invading southern Ontario, and they're going to lead you into captivity. This is serious business. Nothing against the state of New York, but just that they're close to them. But there's this people that are going to come and bring you out of here and destroy your culture, lead you into a new land. It's not looking good. And this is this is kind of how Isaiah. So the verse before at the end of chapter eight, he says this about the situation to Israel and they they being Israel will look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. They will be thrust into thick darkness. So let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, and we're going to go through the first three verses as Isaiah describes what hope is. We're going to pick up a few key things. Then we're going to go through the rest of the the passage here about how hope is explained, and then I want to talk about how hope is embodied, and then finally how we can practice hope right here and right now. All right, so you guys have your little handout thing. This is for you to take notes if you'd like as we're uh, working through together. So let's read verse 1 together of Isaiah chapter 9. So right after he says they're going to be thrust into a thick darkness, Isaiah says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So I thought we were just talking about being thrown into thick darkness. And immediately Isaiah is starting talk, talking about how they're going to be brought into glory. And there's going to be no more gloom or anguish. So we, let's think through this. So in verse 1, we hear Yahweh is, is explaining what Yahweh actually does. So what we could, we could say is this. Yahweh turns the light on. They were thrown into darkness. And Yahweh immediately responds, or he responds, not immediately, by turning the light on. It talks about how essentially those he humbled, he will now honor. He has made them glorious, declaring this in the past tense as if it has already happened. Okay, so Isaiah has some type of hope already that he's establishing in this God called Yahweh. So if Yahweh does that, what do we as Yahweh's people or what do Israel as Yahweh's people enjoy? This is what he goes on to say in verse two. He says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Okay, so what's going on? Yahweh is, I thought that they were going to be thrown into darkness. Yahweh somehow intervenes and he turns the light on. And Yahweh's people are able to enjoy coming out of the darkness and into the light. Who remembers in the creation story who who actually creates light? God. He says, let there be light into the darkness. So this is a creative act of God. And so we were, like we were talking about this morning, uh, the, sun, the sunrise every morning is an objective reality that we can subjectively experience. And so this is what Israel is, is, is being called into, is a subjective experience of actually seeing the light of Yahweh that he's going to turn on. And so Yahweh turns the light on, they get to enjoy the light being turned on, and then what happens? Let's read in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So what follows, uh, I love this phrase. This is the one commentary I read. It says this. After the lights are turned on, they're able to enjoy every sort of joy ever known. 
Uh, we see that there's a harvest, which speaks of some type of peaceful abundance. I have here C, potato festival. I imagine an incredible <laughs> potato festival happening here. Um, there's this share in the spoils of victory. The victory that, of course, was won through Yahweh, not in their own capacity or in their, or in their own strength. So Yahweh turns the light on. So, okay, first, they're thrown into darkness. Then Yahweh turns the light on. Then they're able to see because the light's been turned on. Then they're able to enjoy every sort of joy ever known. But what, how does this make any sense? Are you guys tracking? This feels confusing to me in some ways. So, so Israel, or, um, Isaiah is going very quickly from a very gloomy and doomy story into this very hopeful and triumphant thing. And so this is what the, the one commentary I read says this. I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says, waiting in faith and hope, which is what Isaiah is doing. The remnant is sustained by the forecast of the great light that shines beyond the darkness. It is a sure hope, so sure that, according to Hebrew idiom, it is even written in past tenses as though it has already happened. Because of this confidence has, sorry, because of this confidence Isaiah can place in light of chapter 9, verse 1, that Yahweh will turn the light on again, in immediate proximity to the darkness of chapter 8, verse 22, that they're thrown into a thick darkness. Not because it will immediately happen, but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Let me read that one more time. He's confident not because it will immediately happen, but because it is immediately evident to the eye of faith. Believers walking in darkness can already see the great light and are sustained by hope. So Yahweh is made, has made himself known to Isaiah in such a way that even in the midst of the darkest darkness, he is already able to see the coming light. Not because it will happen immediately, but because it is immediately evident to him because of his faith in Yahweh. So this is how hope is described, guys. But how do we explain hope? Let's read on in chapter 9, verses 4 to 7. So again, this is all about what Yahweh does and then what we get to experience as his people and then what follows from what Yahweh has done in our history. So verse 4 of chapter 9 says this, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. So what does Yahweh do? He delivers his people. He rescues them. And this is uh, Isaiah is hearkening back to the story of Egypt where all of Israel was held in captivity for hundreds of years. And God delivered them out of slavery and captivity into freedom. So God's deliverance is both total and complete. And he's also hearkening back to the story of a battle in Midian. Does anyone know what that battle is or who that involved? A little Bible trivia. The Midianites and the Israelites. (laughs) Maybe I should be more specific. Any specific person that was involved in that battle? Uh, Moses. Good guess. Isaiah? So that that in and of itself is quite the story, right? God's victory comes in a very unexpected way. So hope explained is this. Yahweh intervenes on our behalf to deliver us in a way that is total and complete and also unexpected. And what happens is he ends all suffering and oppression through this very unexpected work of God. This is how hope is explained. Yahweh does something on our behalf, something we can never do ourselves. He does for us. And so what do we enjoy as Yahweh brings us hope and delivers us? 
Uh, verse 6 says this. Um, sorry, verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tum- tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. Pretty descriptive language here. Essentially what he's saying is the fruit of Yahweh's victory are what we're going to be enjoying because the war is over. The people of God are able to enjoy the victory we didn't win. What we experience and know in this place is both peace and freedom. Okay, so Yahweh's intervened on our behalf. He's won this victory. And then how is this, what's actually going to happen? How do we explain this hope? And this is what we've been, what we're going to be celebrating in Advent is this waiting for this coming thing, this coming event that's going to take place. So let's read verses six to seven. Uh, Verse six says this, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So who's coming, guys? Jesus. A child is born. Even that is a very unexpected way for Yahweh to intervene in our history. It says very plainly that the government shall be upon his shoulders. And that's very, it's a, it's a prophetic picture of what eventually will happen when Jesus goes to be crucified. The Roman cross will actually be on his shoulders where the evil government that was established then will be upon him. And he'll take it and destroy it, all that kind of stuff. Um, but what, what's going to happen after Yahweh delivers us and we experience that is that there's going to be this new king who comes and establishes his rule. And that, of course, is King Jesus. But what will his rule and reign be like? There's a few clues here as he's described as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. His rule, because he's a wonderful counselor, will be supernaturally wise. It will bring a wisdom far above the human wisdom that we've come to know ourselves. Because he's a mighty God, he's the actual full embodiment of God's presence. So his rule and reign will be full of the very presence of God. And because he's known as our everlasting father, there's this unending impermanence to his rule and reign, marked by concern, care, and discipline for those of us who are his children. And finally, because he's the prince of peace, his kingdom will be marked, his rule and reign will be marked by wholeness, by harmony, by well-being, and ultimately, and most importantly, by peace with God and with one another. So in summary, guys, in this, God is passionately committed to his people as he holds the future, as he shatters their foe, and he, as he keeps his promises. Okay, so that's all well and good. Um, this is actually real hope, and there's a big difference between hope and optimism. And we see this in Isaiah. That he's essentially prophesying, hey guys, listen, you're going to be led into captivity, and then right away talks about how this coming hope is going to be there. So hope is different than optimism because optimism is, is most, mostly looking to evidential like proof of what's going to happen. It's very, um, what's the word? It's very circumstantial, whereas hope is much bigger. It's rooted in a person, Jesus, and it is sustained by who he is, his, his promises, his character, his goodness. And it gives us and allows us to think differently, giving him both um, freedom to, to act creatively on our behalf. So if we're thinking about just the story of, that we're in right now, there's no real reason for optimism, but there is reason for hope. So when this is being written, like, did anyone have an idea when this is being written? 700 
my goodness, right on. Was it actually? So, like 7.30, so round, round down. It's good enough. So when was Jesus born? Pretty soon after this? No. 700 years later. 730 years later. So let's go back to, uh, let's go back to these slides here. So Isaiah is, is can we go to uh, next one? There we go. So there's this promise of a, of a king that's going to come. And in the foreground before that is this whole idea of this impending invasion of, of Assyria. And so essentially they know things are going to get better before they, or worse before they get better. But even now, we can read this flatly and think this is going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but it's still going to happen right away. And again, let's flip it to the other side to see perspective. There's 700 years they have to go through of ups and downs, of doubt, of discouragement, of disillusionment, of all kinds of ups and downs. So imagine, fast forward 700 years, the actual birth of Jesus. The, the coming Messiah, the one that's been promised 700 years before this Jesus comes. So let's read together uh, how Jesus actually ties this story together. So if you guys have your Bible, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 4. If not, it'll be on the screen. And let's listen for some uh, similarities between the verses that we just read in Isaiah. So this is after Jesus has been um, tempted in the desert. This is the very beginning of his ministry. He says, this is what uh, Matthew says in, in chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and, and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Anyone remember those names? Yes. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Interesting. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace that Israel had been waiting for, and that we are waiting for whether we know it or not. He is the one who holds our future, who shatters our foe, and who keeps his promises. The interesting thing, though, is that does he always do it in a way that we expect? Never, at least in my experience, never the way I expect. He does things in a consistently surprising and uniquely better way than we could ever have anticipated. So what he does is he comes, as, as he announces the kingdom, as he calls us back into relationship with God, as he invites us to be his apprentices and disciples, as we learn from him how to be a human. He's establishing this kingdom that is uniquely and surely right side up, as opposed to our upside down way of living. What does he do? He conquers death by dying. What? He takes away our sin by becoming our sin. What? The God of the universe... Almighty God comes down in the form of a helpless baby. These are truly creative and free ways to express and embody the hope that we're longing for. So as we on this side of Jesus's birth wait for his eventual return, we're invited to anticipate with hope that he will keep his word, 
that he will reunite heaven and earth, that he will wipe away every tear, that he will take away our sadness, that he will dwell with us forever. And there in the new city, there will be no need for a sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will give the city its light. And the lamp is the very lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So in Jesus, we find a secure source and object of our hope. More often than not, guys, we are placing our hope in things and in people who will always disappoint us and let us down. It is in his very light that we see light, one of the psalmists says. He is faithful. He is our living hope. Amen? Amen. So how do we practice hope? I would suggest this is just my, my, my summary thought here, guys, for us today. God is calling us to something deeper than baptized optimism. What I I mean by that is just this way of seeing the world that isn't rooted in reality. It's just telling everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And ignoring what's actually going on around us. That's like, you know, Jess had to actually go through contractions to have Lily to be born. She had to go through difficulties to actually birth something. And all along in the scriptures, there's this whole metaphor of, of us being, needing to be reborn, of all of creation groaning in birth pains for the longing and the, the return of Jesus. And so, yeah, we, we look forward with hope, not with optimism, because things sometimes have to get worse before they get better. This is where God is inviting us to embrace the re- that exact reality that sometimes needs to get worse before they get better. But in that, he is with us. In that, he is leading us on. In that, he is creatively and faithfully keeping his word to us. Kevin and Heather read this verse this morning, but I think it it bears worth repeating. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've done nothing to deserve this, my friends. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you in this last time. Sorry, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Hey, sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If I were to ask any mom in here who has actually given birth, I would say that they would probably say it was worth it to get to, to see their, their baby for the very first moment. It's worth going through difficulties, guys, to see what God is wanting to birth in us as his people. There's something that he wants to form and shape in us that is not going to be easy, but requires us to look to him in hope and not just in some type of shallow optimism. We trust him because he is faithful. He is good. He wants to deliver us. He wants to crush our foe. and He wants to keep his word to us. So how do we practice hope when, if we're honest, a lot of us probably feel disillusioned, disappointed, or discouraged? Uh, Just a brief word on this. Um, This is something I've been really challenged by as as just me and my own journey of discipleship is, is showing up to God with my 
disappointment, with my discouragement, and with my disillusionment. You see, I, had, I was under this impression that to be a good Christian meant I had to be incredibly optimistic and pretend like things that were bothering me or hurt me or were discouraging me weren't actually there. Because if I really had faith, I would just say everything's going to be okay and I would just push through. Anyone else? Just me. Okay. Um, no more people. Um, this quote came to mind. I was talking to a guy years ago, this guy named David Campbell, about this whole idea of being disillusioned. And he said, Tom, when you go through disillusionment, it is actually a gift. Because what God's doing is, is he's revealing to you that you're, the very thing that you had put your hope and trust in was an illusion. You're disillusioned because you, that, that illusion is going to let you down. And so even this very idea of hope versus optimism, we can feel disillusioned by that, but that's God's grace showing us, hey, man, it's okay to express your disappointment and your discouragement to me. I can handle this. I'm okay with you processing how you actually feel. And so for some of us, maybe that's step one. We've, un- we've been in this, this illusion that to be faithful, to have hope in God, is to pretend like half of you doesn't exist. Or those experiences didn't happen. Or those hopes and dreams that you had that didn't come through in the way that you expected, that, that doesn't weigh on you or hurt you or change the way that you see the future moving forward. Those things happened. Let's not pretend like they didn't. But how we process them is the trick. How we pro- who we process them with is the real, the real ticket. So God can handle all of our discouragement, our disappointment, and our disillusionment because he is not insecure, guys. Right. He is not afraid, and he is not thrown off by how we really feel. So all of our practices, um, we're going to try to tie into what we talked about last week, which is practicing the spiritual disciplines of silence and solitude. But I have just one more um, idea for us this week as we are learning to wait in hope and anticipation. And uh, this is a real challenge. We, we started off talking about this. But I want to just throw this out there as a practice for how we practice hope. Get up early. Get up early and wait for the light of the morning this week. You see, in Advent, we wait in darkness for the coming light. And so as we're doing this, this is a physical practice that can help us kind of just sit in that. As we wait for the darkness to transition into light each morning, we're giving ourselves a picture of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So even that idea that the dawn is actually objective, it's an objective reality. How does it become subjective for you as you see the first light? Because I think God wants us to experience each of us in our own way, a new uh, depth of what it looks like to live with hope. And then how do we integrate this into silence and solitude? Um, I would just challenge you as remember the goal of silence and solitude is to be with God, right? Be with God with your disillusionment, your discouragement and your disappointment. So show up to God fully and completely bring those things to the table. And there've been a lot of things guys over the last 20 months that are discouraging and are disappointing. And let's be honest with ourselves and with God as we process those things. And I have faith that in that space, we will learn to develop the eyes of faith that Isaiah had. That, hey, they're going to be thrown into this thick darkness, but you know God's going to come and intervene anyways. And he's going to turn the lights on again. So as we do that, as we process our discouragement with God, I believe that there's going to be this new hope that emerges in us as we begin to see him for who he is. His commitment to us that he wants to actually deliver us from our oppressors. That he wants to set us free. That he wants us to enjoy peace and freedom that he himself is sustaining and fighting for. So there's two practices, guys. 
and behind that, learn to be okay with not being okay. Learn to hold your disappointment and discouragement before God and not hide it from God. So with those things in mind, let's try to get up early um, and let's practice silence and solitude where we are actually showing up with our disillusionment, discouragement and disappointment. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, I'm going to read uh, a scripture and a prayer over us. And then I'm going to invite Dan. Actually, the Dan and the worship team and Klaus is going to lead us in communion today as we uh, look forward with hope and anticipation of Jesus returning again. So why don't you guys stand up? <clears throat> So I'm going to read uh, a scripture here, and I'm going to end with a prayer, or kind of a a declarative statement that is from um, Julian of Norwick that's been just bumping around in my head all week. So this is what I want to speak over you guys. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is what I feel like he would speak to us this morning. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Amen.